have your Bible, turn with me, if you will, to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. There are many doctrines that the unbelieving world uh, grasps onto without an understanding of them. But two of the doctrines that they particularly find loathsome uh, are the exclusivity of Christ for salvation and free will. I read a survey that was done months ago, I read the results of it last week, and it said that 70% of professing born-again believers under the age of 45 did not believe that Jesus Christ is the only way to heaven and the only way of salvation. If you don't believe that Jesus Christ is the only way to heaven, I seriously doubt that you have any clue what born-again the other doctrine that the world latches on to is man's free will. Man has a free will. Man is autonomous. They like Henley's poem, Invictus, you know, that says, I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Uh, people ask me frequently, does man have free will? And I usually answer, it depends on how you define free will. Does man have libertarian free will? No. Is man autonomous? Absolutely not. Man is free to act according to his nature. And the nature of lost men is that they are dead in their trespasses and sins. And they're free to act as if they are dead in trespasses and sins. They are under the dominion of sin and of Satan and of death. There is only one truly free being in the universe, and that is God. God is autonomous. He has absolute freedom. No human is free to do everything he or she may want to do. All of us, except for God, are limited, are enslaved by someone or something. So the only meaningful question in this area is, who or what are you serving? That is the point of the passage that is before us this morning. As human beings, we are not completely free. We can never be autonomous. We must either be slaves to sin or slaves of Jesus Christ. You notice in, re in reading the New Testament that quite frequently Paul will describe himself, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ. The word is doulos, a bond slave. Paul considered himself to be a bond slave of Jesus Christ. And to be a slave of Jesus Christ, here's the irony, is the only true freedom. It is only when we come to be slaves of Christ that we have that ability not to sin because we're no longer slaves to sin. All of this flows from our study of Romans Six. The verses that I want to look at this morning, verses 15 through 18, are the beginning of a section that continues to the end of the chapter. And if you look at it, it is obvious that these verses are parallel to the first half of the chapter, verses 1 through 14. Each section deals with a nearly identical question. The first verse of section 1 says, What shall we say then? 
Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? And the first verse of section 2 raises the same issue. He says in verse 15, What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? And the questions are followed by an, an, an identical response. What the ESV translates, by no means. The King James translates it, God forbid. It is, a, it is an extremely strong negative in the original language. And from that point on, the two sections follow parallel tracks. As Paul explains why it is impossible for a believer in Christ to continue to sin and, and why, by contrast, Christians must yield the parts of their bodies to God as instruments of righteousness. These arguments are so close together that you can lift terms from one section and transfer them to the other without any real change in meaning. And yet they are not identical. They have the same objective to show that believers cannot go on sinning. If you are a believer, you will not continue sinning. You will not practice sin as a lifestyle because now you have a new nature. You are in Christ. You have been regenerated. You have different desires. You uh, <clears throat> can no longer sin with impunity. Uh, the first section comes out of a discussion in chapter 5 in which Paul argues that the Christian is not under law but under grace and that grace will triumph. And he says that grace does not lead to sin. The reason for that is we've been joined to Christ. If we have been joined to Christ, the past is behind. We have become a new creation. And there's no place for us to go but forward, walking in uh, righteousness, in righteous conduct. The second section comes out of the discussion in Romans 6, 1 through 14, particularly verse 14, where Paul rejects law as a vehicle of righteousness. And he argues that freedom from the law does not lead to sin either. Some people would conclude, well, we're free from the law. Now we can sin all that we want because we're under grace. Paul says that we have been freed from the law, not that we might become autonomous creatures, which we could not be on any account, but we have been freed from the law to be slaves to God, to be slaves of righteousness. So either you are a slave of sin resulting in death, or you are a slave to obedience resulting in righteousness. Now clearly, Paul's theme here is slavery. The word slave or enslaved occur eight times in verses 15 through 23, in every verse except for 15, 21, and 23. Also, obedience, obedient, and obey occur four times. So the question is, whose slave are you? Everybody is a slave. Whose slave are you? Paul begins the, the section in verse 15 by saying that 
grace is not a license to sin. The issues of law and grace uh, are, are one of the most uh, controversial in the Bible. I, I don't have any intention of trying to resolve all of those issues here this morning. But often they have been taken to two extremes that we must be careful to avoid. Some have feared that if we emphasize grace too much, people will fall into sin and licentiousness. So they virtually put people back under the law, emphasizing rules that they consider essential for holy living. However, most of the time, those rules are not biblical commands, but rather they are conservative cultural norms man-made rules that are propped up by Bible verses that are taken out of context. They become legalistic and they, uh, uh, they exalt themselves over other people who don't keep their rules. You know, well, this, this fellow Moses Yard on Sunday, he must not be a Christian. <clears throat> well, th th this person here goes to the theater. They go to movies. Well, they not they must not be a Christian. Of course, there's nothing about either one of those things in the Bible, but it's a convenient way for you to judge others while you exalt yourself. Man-made rules. And then we look at the Pharisees and say, oh, weren't they terrible? Well, yeah, kind of. But that that is one extreme. And invariably, legalists never focus on the sins of the heart. They never focus on sins of the heart. I've run across innumerable Baptists who thought surely that if a person had a glass of wine or a beer, they were going straight to hell. But they could sit and tell racist jokes and talk about how they hated people because of the color of their skin, and they were going to just burst into heaven, you know, just glorious. The sins of the heart don't matter. Gossip, slander, libel, no big deal. As I said last week, there are those who elevate worry to a virtue. Oh, look at look at that person. Look how they worry so much. Isn't that wonderful? Well, no, not exactly. That's basically not trusting God. Legalists focus on uh, outward sins, sins that can be easily judged. Uh, I've, I've said for years, we elect deacons in the Baptist church basically if they've never been divorced. Nothing else matters. It doesn't matter if they're filled with the Spirit. It doesn't matter, you know, and the husband of one wife does not mean never divorced. Never has meant that. But we can focus on that because we can see it. See, it's something that we can observe immediately. The Pharisees and the Judaizers in the Bible were the leading proponents of this false superficial spirituality. Now, on the other end of the spectrum are those who have concluded if you are under grace, then sin doesn't matter. The more you sin, the more grace will abound. And God is a loving, tolerant, nice old guy that sits up in the sky and never, ever, ever judges anyone. So they mistake grace to mean that God is not concerned about sin. And that the Christian life is not concerned about the pursuit of holiness. And so this 
leads to licentiousness, or what the ESV translates sensuality in a number of verses. Now, here's something I think is very important. God's true grace is not the balance point between legalism and licentiousness. Rather, legalism and licentiousness are two sides of the same coin. They're basically the same thing because they are both operating in the flesh. They are operating in the flesh. They're just two sides of the same coin. The legalist acting in the flesh takes pride in his religious practices. He condemns those who do not measure up to his standard of righteousness and congratulates himself on his performance. I don't smoke and I don't chew and I don't go with the girls that do. Therefore, I'm just a better Christian than all of you. And he imagines that by keeping his set of man-made rules and regulations, he commends himself to God. But he's operating in the flesh. He is not examining his heart before God. And it's quite obvious the licentious person, the sensual person, is operating in the flesh. He's giving in to the lust of the flesh and justifying it by equating grace with a tolerance for sin. So both legalism and licentiousness operate from the sinful flesh. And God's grace is opposed to both of those. It is not a balance point between them, but rather a completely different way of our relating to God. As we've seen, if you truly preach God's grace, then you will always be accused of licentiousness from the legalists. Martin Lloyd-Jones said one time, if you preach the grace of God and someone doesn't accuse you of being antinomian, that is against the law, licentious, then you haven't preached it clearly. Because when Jesus preached grace, they accused him of being licentious. Remember Matthew chapter 11? He said of John the Baptist, John the Baptist came neither eating or drinking. And they said, he's got a demon. And he said, the Son of Man came both eating and drinking. And they said of him, he's a glutton and a drunkard. If you preach grace clearly enough, somebody will go away and say, Ah, Brother Bob, believe you can just say it all you want. That is not the case at all. Paul says, no. You're, you're not understanding grace. You don't get it. May it never be. If we have responded to the good news that God justifies the ungodly through faith alone, apart from works, then we will hate the sin that nailed Jesus to the cross. We will find it abhorrent. We are now identified with him in his death to sin and resurrection to new life. The new life of Christ within us manifests itself in a life of obedience to God. Paul said in, in verse 19, lawlessness is the mark of the slave of sin. 
and righteousness is the mark of the one who has received God's grace. So test yourself this way. If you think that being under grace means that you are free to sin or you can just shrug off your sin as no big deal, you know, I'll just first John 1, 9 it, that'll be it, then you do not understand grace. You don't get it. You haven't understood what the Bible says about grace. If motivated by God's love and grace in giving his son, you now hate your sin and you fight your sin and you strive to be obedient, then you understand grace. I've never met a real believer who did not sin, and yet I've never met one who loved it. They hate it. They despise it. Sometimes to the point of almost sliding into the pit because they so hate their sin and their seeming inability to overcome it. If you are fighting sin, if you hate sin, then you understand grace. God instructs, God's grace instructs and trains us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires, to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, Paul told Titus in Titus chapter 2. So Paul wants to make sure that we understand that the proper result of God's grace is to make us slaves of righteousness, not lawlessness. The second point that Paul makes here, second point I'm making here is that the master you obey shows whose slave you are. Well, it's not too tough, is it? The master that you obey shows whose slave you are. There are only two options. There are no, no others. No third way. No third rail. You give yourself to be a slave of sin resulting in death, or you give yourself to be a slave of obedience resulting in in righteousness. Paul again appeals to knowledge. In this case, the common knowledge of a general example. Don't you know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves to the one whom you obey. Either sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. Uh, in that culture, sometimes a man had to sell himself into slavery in order to meet financial obligations. And once you did that, you were a slave of the one you sold yourself to. He was your master, and you had to obey him as your master. Paul's point here, though, is that it is not so much that a slave had to obey his master, is that the master you obey shows whose slave you are. Who are you obeying? That's whose slave you are. If you are Obeying sin, the sensual flesh, you're a slave to sin. If you are striving and seeking and fighting to obey God, then you are a slave to obedience and of Jesus Christ. Uh, if there is a change of masters, you obey your new master. So the master that you now obey shows whose slave you are. I find it interesting here that Paul contrasts being a slave of sin 
with being a slave of obedience. You would have thought that he would have said we are a slave of God, which of course, as I said, Paul says that numerous times. But he uses obedience, I think, to make it clear that not being under the law does not imply that we are free to sin. But being under grace means that we present ourselves as slaves of obedience to God. And I think he says it that way to demonstrate very clearly that the obedience is not the means of salvation, but rather it is the result of it. We are slaves to obedience because we have been made new creatures, because we have been regenerated, because we are the ungodly who have been justified by faith alone. We are not saved by our obedience, but rather we are saved by faith, and that results in a life of obedience. Now, I think a lot of believers look at verse 16 and say, well, you know, I'm kind of in the middle. You know, I, sometimes I'm a slave of sin. I, I don't know that I'm really a slave of obedience. I'm really in both camps. Nope. Sorry. Won't work. Can't do that. Can't do that. You either are a slave to sin or you are a slave to obedience. There's only two options. You ever, you ever, uh, you ever launch a boat? I'm not good with boats. You know, water. I, 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 showers are good, you know, but other than that, I don't like being in the water. Can't swim, never learn. 70, almost 73 years old, don't expect I'm ever going to now. But I've, I've been caught a couple of times where somebody would say, here, you know, untie that rope. And then you got one foot on the dock, one foot on the boat, and it don't work. You know, it just don't work. Well, it's the same way we're trying to keep both feet in both camps, a slave to sin and a slave to obedience. You, you can't do that. Paul doesn't give us that option. Either Christ is your master and you obey him or sin is your master and you obey it. There's no middle ground. You can't have both Christ and sin as your master. If that sounds extreme, remember that, that Paul is simply repeating the words of Jesus. Jesus said no one can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. Matthew chapter 7, Jesus said there are two and only two gates. The narrow gate that leads to life and the broad gate that leads to destruction. There are two types of trees. A good tree that bears good fruit and a bad tree that bears bad fruit. There are only two kinds of builders. Those who are wise and build upon the rock and those who are foolish and build upon the sand. The wise builder represents those who hear the words of Jesus and obey them. And the foolish builder hears Jesus' words and does not obey. So everybody serves something or somebody. And you can tell who a person is serving by his behavior, his actions. What's down in the well will come up in the bucket. If you are a slave to sin, then you are mastered by it. If you are a slave to obedience, leading to righteousness and eternal life, then you are a slave of Jesus Christ. 
Those who are slaves of sin are not under grace. They are headed for eternal damnation. Those who are slaves of Christ have tasted his grace. They are growing in righteousness. They have eternal life. So are you a slave of sin or a slave of Christ? Thirdly, regeneration is the only way you can exchange masters. It is only by being born from above that you move from being a slave of sin to being a slave of Jesus Christ. Paul here describes the great change that, that came over Roman believers when God saved them. These changes are true of everyone whom God has saved. They're radical changes, not minor. From being slaves of sin, they became obedient from the heart to sound teaching. From being in bondage to sin, they were free to become slaves of righteousness. So there's a change of lordship. They come from the domain of Satan into God's domain of righteousness. There is a change of thinking so that now they submit to biblical truth. The great danger, I, and I, it's been a danger throughout the history of the church. The great danger in the church today is that people who think they are a Christian and yet don't think the way the Bible does. And you tell them what the Bible says, no, I... Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. Oh, but I know this Muslim lady. She is so nice. She's just so sweet. I, I just can't believe she's going to hell. Believe it. She does not repent of her sin and put her faith in Jesus Christ. She's going to hell. It's, it's not very nice to not tell people the truth when their eternal destiny is at stake. And yet we have people who say, oh, I'm a believer, I'm a Christian. Well, what about what the Bible says? I don't believe that. Yeah, well, I'm having trouble believing you're a Christian. Because we are under a different domain. We're under the Lordship of Christ. And His Word constrains us. We think differently. There's a change of heart. We're now willing slaves to God. We embrace it. We love him. We hate our former master. There's a change of will so that we obey God's standard of righteousness. Now, see, a couple of thoughts here. Number one, salvation is of the Lord. Slaves of sin are not able to free themselves by their own efforts. As a matter of fact, slaves of sin most of the time don't even realize that they are slaves. And they resent anyone telling them that. If you tell someone who is an unbeliever you're a slave to sin, they respond the way the Jews did. When Jesus told the Jews that uh, if you continue in my word, you're truly my disciples, you know the truth, and the truth will make you free. And what did the Jews say? Ha! We are Abraham's descendants. We've never been slaves to anybody. Seriously? They spent 400 years in slavery in Egypt. They were enslaved by the Assyrians. They were enslaved by the Babylonians. They were currently under the thumb of Rome. I'm thinking these people don't think too well. But that's what the response you're going to get if you go 
out into the world today and say to someone, well, you know, if you're not a believer, you're a slave to sin. I am not. I am not. I do what I want to. It's you Christians who are bound up. You're the ones that can't have a good time. In our text here, in verse 18, Paul uses the passive verb, set free from sin. What's that mean? It means that God alone does it. Not a joint project. It's not where we do our part and God gives us a boost and we're able to achieve this victory. You notice that in verse 17, Paul said, thanks be to God. He didn't say thanks be to God. And oh, by the way, you deserve a lot of the credit too. You know, because this was a joint effort. And you people, you know, no. We were enslaved to sin and we loved it. We loved the darkness rather than the light because the light exposes evil deeds that we have done. So when God graciously frees us from the domain of sin, he deserves all the thanks and the glory. In the beginning of the message, the world hates the idea of the exclusivity of Christ and they love the idea of free will. That doesn't surprise me. What surprises me is so many in the church love that. There's so many people in the church who think, oh man, it's free. Oh, you know, salvation is a joint effort. You know, God does his part, I do my part, I get saved. Seriously? I couldn't tell you the times I've heard some prominent preacher a mega church stand up and say you know God looks down through the corridors of time and he sees who is going to respond in faith when the gospel is preached and he makes his decision he chooses you that's what the doctrine of election is there's a Hebrew word for that baloney same word in the Greek same word in the Latin if God's choice of me is predicated on him knowing what I'm going to do, then I can boast about it when I get to heaven. You know, God chose me because he saw that when I heard the gospel, I'd believe. Boy, I can just strut all over heaven. I don't think going to be any strutting in heaven. I believe everybody's going to fall down and say all glory and praise to the lamb that was slain, to Jesus who died and has now rose again. Hallelujah thine the glory salvation is totally God's doing it's God's doing you want to think of salvation as having two parts think of what Jonathan Edwards said he said you supply the sinner and God supplies everything else and then God changes us by bringing our mind and our will and our heart submission to his word look at look at verse 17 God changes us by bringing our minds under the teaching of his word the standard of, of, of teaching he's contrasting holy scripture with I think with the the, the the teachings of the legalist and of the antinomians he's referring to the kind of teaching that is set forth here in Romans up to this point the bottom line is that kind of teaching leads to godly behavior. But God not, does not just change our minds to conform 
to sound teaching. He changes our heart. There are those who can study the Bible in the original languages and dissect, dissect the truth as one dissects a specimen in a biology class, and yet the truth does not affect their hearts. Again, Jonathan Edwards, in a treatise on religious affection, said, true religion in great part consists in holy affections. That is to say, God changes our hearts and our desires. I used to read Psalm 37, 11, and think, well, that's it, that's what I need. Psalm 37, 11, remember, says, delight yourself also in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. I thought, man, that's great. I want a new Mercedes. I'll just get it. You know what I did? God gave me a desire of my heart. I satisfied my share of love. God gives you desires. God gives you the desires that are proper. We understand that truth, and with our hearts and our minds, we willingly embrace them and we rejoice in the truth. And then our wills gladly obey the truth. To be obedient from the heart is not a grudging outward obedience, but cheerful and inner obedience. I told you the story about the little boy. Dad looked at him and said, Sam. The boy said, I'm a sitting down. And the father said, you sit down right now or I'm coming over there with a bell. So the little boy sat down and he said, I'm sitting down on the outside, but I'm standing up on the inside. Well, that's not the kind of obedience that grace brings. Grace brings a cheerful, inward obedience, an obedience of the heart that God alone sees joyfully obey. Notice that this teaching is not committed to the Christians, but rather the Christians are committed to the teaching. You would expect Paul to say that the teaching was committed to the Christians. Some translations do it that way, but that's wrong. It says, to which you were committed. The Christians are committed to this teaching. The teaching not committed to them. They're committed to the teaching. That goes along with the slavery analogy. The idea is that becoming a Christian means putting ourselves under the authority of God's Word. We don't sit in judgment on the Word of God. The Word of God sits in judgment on us. There is a discipline, you know, of, of uh, higher criticism in the world today. Many of religious institutions. I'm not talking about textual criticism. That's a totally different thing. That's where Hebrew and Greek scholars mind the word and try to come to the exact meaning of what God is saying. Higher criticism looks at the Bible and says, okay, this part is true and this part is not. There's a Jesus seminar that's met for many years. And every year they meet, usually in Atlanta, and, and they vote on whether or not these words are true or not. A few years ago, they voted on the Lord's Prayer, the Disciples' Prayer in Matthew 6. And the only thing they came up with that might be original or might really be the Word of God was our. They couldn't even use Father. Okay. I have told you before. I will tell you again. I would sooner have a group of monkeys with a jug full of lightning bugs trying to pass judgment on the light of the sun as to have someone tell me what parts of my Bible are inspired or not. Thank you very much. I'll take it all. It is
is the word of the living God. And we don't sit in judgment of God's word. God's word sits in judgment on us. We simply come to submit our lives to the teachings that are found here. When God saves you, he frees you from sin and he makes you a slave of righteousness. Verse 18 is not an exhortation, it's a statement of fact. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. He's not saying do that, he's saying that's been done. You have been set free from sin and you are now a slave of righteousness. That refutes the false teaching of 615 that says because we're not under law but under grace, we can continue in sin. No, 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 you can't do that. You've been set free from sin and you are a slave to righteousness. Again, one of two options. Either enslaved to sin or enslaved to righteousness. And again, Paul is not saying here that we have become sinlessly perfect. Neither does it say that we have been freed from the vestiges of the old sin nature. We are still tempted by the flesh, the world, and the devil. We will always be tempted by sin. This is a battle, people, and it will end when we are absent from the body and present with the Lord. Then and only then will we, will we be freed from temptation. What this means is, though, that the power of sin has been broken in our lives. We don't have to obey sin. We are no longer the slave to sin. We are the slaves of Jesus Christ. Slaves to obedience, leading to righteousness. We've come under the power and the influence and the control of righteousness before we served sin. We delighted in it. We, take great, we took great pleasure in it and thought nothing of it. Now we serve righteousness. We obey God and His Word. The irony is that true freedom is not freedom to sin. Rather, true, true freedom consists in slavery to God and His righteousness. The only way to be freed from the slavery of sin is to be a slave of Jesus Christ and of righteousness. One of two options. That's it. Where are you? A slave to sin, a slave to righteousness. Our Father and our God.